New York's Hospital for Special Surgery is a medical marvel, ranking among the world's best and making the city a go-to destination for orthopedic treatment. Tonight, the hospital's top doctors are in to share the secrets of its incredible 160-year run as MetroFocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to MetroFocus. I'm Jack Ford. New York is home to some of the world's top healthcare providers, and one organization that's turned the city into a go to destination for treatment is Hospital for Special Surgery. Celebrating its 160th anniversary this year, HSS has been ranked number one in orthopedics in the nation for 13 years in a row by U.S. News and World Report. The hospital treats everyone from celebrities and sports stars to everyday New Yorkers in need of complicated care. And tonight, we're going behind the curtain for a closer look at the future of medicine and what makes HSS so successful. Dr. Brian Kelly is President, Surgeon-in-Chief, and Medical Director at Hospital for Special Surgery, who will be taking over as CEO later this year. And Dr. Thomas Skulko is Surgeon-in-Chief Emeritus and Director of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Complex Joint Reconstruction Center at HSS. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let, let me start off with a little full disclosure here. I have been a patient at HSS on a number of different times. I had knee replaced. I've had some spinal fusion surgery done, and I'll, I'll give you a, a unsolicited testimonial. I, my results have been nothing short of miraculous. So that getting out in front, let's talk a little bit now about what you do and how you do it. And Dr. Kelly, let me start with you if I can. Um, I mentioned the great success HSS has had in terms of, of rank, rankings. Um, my question to you is, is this. For somebody who's not familiar with the hospital, tell us about it, its mission, its, its specialties, and how it has been able to continue its successes over the years. Yeah, well, well, thank you very much for having us. Uh, HSS is uh, otherwise known as Hospital for Special Surgery is a orthopedic musculoskeletal uh, subspecial hospital that's been around for 160 years. We're just celebrating our 160th anniversary uh, this year. Um, it started off in 1863 as a, um, a bracing hospital for young children with deformities and uh, has evolved over the last 160 years to a, a specialty hospital really focused on all aspects of musculoskeletal health. Um, we do you know, close to 40,000 orthopedic surgeries here per year, uh, but we also have a really impressive and large rheumatology department and uh, perioperative medicine department, pathology, radiology, um, anesthesia. And what's unique about HSS, and I think one of the reasons why we have been fortunate enough to uh, be able to continue to provide extraordinary care for our patients is because of the singular focus, uh, the ability for us 
regardless of the subspecialty area or the different department uh, departments, we're all focused on the same thing. It's, it's uh, maximizing mobility for patients and allowing them to uh, have as active a lifestyle as they can and, and, and enjoy movement. Um, I think um, the, uh, aside from the specialty nature of it, I think it's the other thing that I think sets us apart is, is really the culture and the people. It's a, it's a um, environment that's really focused on patient care first, uh, highest quality care possible. Uh, it's focused on making sure it's the best environment for uh, clinicians to provide care. So we make sure that we have the re everyone has the resources they need. Uh, and you really feel that culture of excellence and pride about the organization uh, at every level of the organization, whether it's the parking attendant or the security guard when you first come in, all the way up to the senior surgeons and everything in between. Uh, it's really a singular focus for high quality of patient excellence. And I, I can attest to that for you. Once again, another unsolicited testimonial that having spent a lot of nights there, a lot of days there, the quality of the people, as you said, from the surgeons on down. Dr. Skolko, let me ask you about this. And and people might look at the, the the name, Hospital for Special Surgery, and think, okay, all they do there is is surgery. And, and names are interesting. And I, I love this. And I had seen this when I first went looking at its history. As you said, Dr. Kelly, 1863, the oldest orthopedic hospital in the country. Originally, its name was the New York Society for the Relief of the Ruptured and Crippled, which I, I thought was just very curious to see how it's evolved. But Dr. Skalko, somebody might be watching this and saying, so the only thing that you do there is, is surgery, nothing else. And that's not really true, right? No, no, we, we are a, a, a musculoskeletal hospital, both surgical and non-surgical. So, for example, we have 40 rheumatologists that work here. Uh, we have physiatrists, probably have 25 physiatrists. These are non-operative specialists in the care of bone, joint, arthritis, that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> but we do a great deal of surgery. When, when non-surgical treatment doesn't work, then we are here to deal with problems surgically. And as Brian pointed out, we are the largest uh, musculoskeletal orthopedic center in the world by far. And for example, a big hospital might do a thousand joint replacements a year. We do 13,000. So the scale of it uh, is tremendous. And just to reiterate about the culture. So people who work here, I'm talking from the top to the bottom, never leave. They're committed to the care of the patients. Uh, they love working here. Even though we have grown significantly, it's a family. Uh, and when you come here, uh, they have a great deal of pride in what they do. And that makes it a special hospital. Yeah. So, Dr. Kelly, I want to talk a little bit about, about the, the future of, of medicine, orthopedic medicine, all the things you do. And we mentioned uh, the work you do, surgical, non-surgical, research that is done there. From your perspective in, in sports medicine, talk a little bit about what you've seen change over your time and what you're looking at, at the future. I'll give you an illustration. When I played football at, at Yale back in the early 1970s, if you blew out your knee, generally speaking, you were done. You know, ACL, people didn't come back from ACL tears. Talk a little bit about the progress you've seen and where you think all of this is going in the future. So, when, when I think about what are the core foundational pillars upon which our institution sits, the first is patient experience and quality. The second is academics and teaching. The third is research and the fourth is culture. Um, and when I think of, of the, my area of specialization, which is sports medicine, 
sports medicine focusing on hip injuries and in athletes, the field didn't exist when I was in residency program. So uh, if you think about uh, the evolution of the knee replacement or the hip replacement, uh, much of the progress and and even the, uh, some of the, the very first knee replacements and joint replacements that were ever performed in the world occurred here. So the research component of what we're doing isn't just research uh, for writing papers and standing at podiums, but to really change the future of the field of, of orthopedics. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of progress uh, in all aspects of, of orthopedics uh, with much better outcomes. And really, at the end of the day, the reason why we're focused on research is to improve outcomes so that we can improve not just how we can help uh, patients in the immediate present, but to make sure it's a sustainable improvement in their quality of life over time. And that really, really requires a, a lot of research. I think the future of orthopedics uh, is going to be re really be um, um, uh, molded by uh, by technology and innovation. And we've seen this uh, really dramatically increase so even over the last 10 years here with the implementation of robotic surgery and other surgical enabling technology that we're bringing augmented reality and virtual reality into the operating room. We're able to uh, train our young uh, orthopedic uh, residents and fellows uh, in virtual settings. We can actually hold conferences now uh, while, and do surgery while people are observing halfway across the world. Uh, we can actually, with virtual uh, reality now uh, and simulation, we can bring patients or we can bring uh, other surgeons into the operating room and stand next to you virtually while you're performing the procedure. Um, so I, I just think it's a really exciting time for orthopedics because of all of the innovation that's occurring and the transformation that's occurring. occurring. Uh, and I think one, one of the reasons why HSS is such an exciting place is because a lot of that innovation occurs here. We have a large orthopedic staff, uh, incredibly talented, inc incredibly productive, uh, but also incredibly inquisitive and always trying to push the envelope. Uh, and we're, we're going to continue to see that sort of transformation. Yeah. I think the, big, the biggest change that we're going to see is um, the, trans the transition from inpatient surgery to outpatient surgery. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I'll come back to that in a second for it, but I want to come back to Dr. Skulko, something that Dr. Kelly talked about, and, and that's innovation, technology innovation. And, and I mentioned the Complex Joint Reconstruction Center. Um, you're the director of Fairly New. I know that a lot of your research has to do um, with improvements in surgical techniques and try to eliminate failures in hip and knee replacements. And, and we seem to be seeing more and more in terms of technology, the idea of, of 3D imaging and construction and, and patient-specific implants. Tell us where we're going on that. Yeah, so that, that's a great point. I think um, if you look at the field of joint replacement, um, most orthopedic surgeons are trained to do a primary or hip or knee replacement. This center is unique in the world in that as part of our mission here at the hospital, we want to take care of the most complex problems, which other centers probably are not as equipped to do. So we created this center, um, and it was supported to a large extent by the Nearcos Foundation. It's the only one in the world. And so the center is devoted to caring for patients who oftentimes cannot get access to care. These are people who have bad infections after a joint replacement. These are rare complications, but they do occur. And to, to get back to your point about 3D, we use 3D modeling a great deal because many of them have bone loss problems, 
which are unique to the individual patient. So we can actually make a model. I did a patient two weeks ago. We actually made a model of their pelvis. We did a mock operation on the model, and then we created an implant and then used it first on the model and then in the operating room. So that technology has enabled us to tackle the most difficult problems. And this center particularly dedicates itself to that. Come back to Dr. Kelly for a second. You, you mentioned, and I, people may find this fascinating, that you know, the particular special subspecialty didn't exist when you were training. It is, it, it, is your view looking forward? Let's say you're looking back 20 years now, let's look 20 years forward now. And some of the technology that Dr. Skolko has mentioned, will that even be essentially old school 20 years from now? They'll, they'll certainly, I would never say anything that Dr. Skolko is, has done in his <laughs> career will be old school. It'll always be cutting edge, but um, no, I think there'll be continued evolution. There'll be improvements in technologies. That's sort of an example um, in the joint replacement world. When I was a resident, uh, we never, we always did total knee replacements. The concept of a partial knee, even though only, you know, there's three compartments in the knee, one of them may, sometimes all three of them are diseased, but other times only one is, and it used not to matter. You do the total knee, you, you replace all three compartments, even if it was only one. And now it's evolved as it being, it's, it's sort of patient specific. What does that patient need? Can we just do a partial replacement and just address the area that is diseased? I think the big, you know, we deal with broken bones. I don't think we'll ever change that because if they break, we have to fix them. There may be different techniques to do that, which are less invasive. But I think arthritis is a very interesting one because the, the disease process of arthritis has to do with the loss of cartilage in the knee. Right. And there's lots of uh, research that's currently going on. Are there ways that we can uh, grow cartilage in a laboratory? Are there ways that we can grow cartilage in a joint? And will there be a way in the future where we can deal with arthritic changes, uh, at least at some level, without actually doing surgery by actually letting the body heal itself? So. I'm, I, it's hard to know what the future is going to exactly look like, but I'm sure it will look different than the present. Tonight, we welcome the co-founders of a unique school that is providing a model for inclusive learning in the city. The Ideal School of Manhattan is New York City's only K-12 independent inclusion school. The school was founded some 17 years ago by three mothers out of a specific need a truly inclusive, diverse school with small class sizes where students of all abilities can learn together in the same classroom. School has grown over the years, now moving to a new, larger home down in the financial district. And here to talk about the school as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative, focusing on solutions to structural inequities are two of the co-founders of the Ideal School of Manhattan, Audra Zuckerman, and Michelle Smith. Ladies, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Audrey, let me come to you first if I can. So I gave a brief background there in the introduction, but we want to learn more about just how and why the decision was made to, to, to create this approach to learning. Sure. So um, back in 2005, Michelle and I both had young children with Down syndrome. And we were looking for a school setting where our children could be included with their peers, could go to school with their, their peers of the same age. They had been included in everything that we did in our lives up until then, went to inclusive preschool settings. 
And we thought, this is New York City. There's so many school options. This won't be an issue. But we ended up coming up against a lot of roadblocks in this process. Um, many of the public school settings couldn't provide the resources or wouldn't provide the resources to support our students in the way that we knew, knew that they needed it to be successful. Um, the private schools weren't interested in taking students with Down syndrome. And many of the special education schools were not inclusive um, or they really focused on a particular type of disability, not including Down syndrome. So we thought, this is crazy. Um, this Again, it's New York City. How could this be possible? We shouldn't need to leave um, the city that we love and wanted to raise our children in just to find an inclusive educational setting. So we got together with another family and we started to say to each other, let's try this. Let's try to start a school where um, students of all abilities can learn together in one place, be accepted for who they are, have a curriculum that meets each student where they are in the learning process and can, can replicate the beautiful community of New York City itself and the diversity of New York City itself. Michelle, let me ask you to, to, to expand on that a little bit. And, and I think Audra, some of her answer provided that, but to, to, for some clarity for our viewers, when we talk about the notion of inclusive education, what does that actually mean? It means co-educating, not pulling out of classrooms, not it making anyone feel bad or extra good and creating a model where people can learn together as long as the program and the children are surrounded with differentiated instruction. That, that's an interesting point. Let me ask you to follow up on that because I, I know and I'm sure you you run into this where there are some people might have a misperception or just not, just don't fully understand it. And they might say, well, wait a minute. If you're putting everybody in one classroom, does that mean that those with, we hear the term special needs often used, does that mean they're going to get all the emphasis and the others will not? I, I, what is the answer to that in terms of the balance in the classroom? So our, our answer to that in our classrooms is co-teaching and everybody is met with how they learn. And so all the kids typically developing, children that are non-typical are having individualized education learning plans to meet them where they are. And so if math is being taught, math is directed the way it needs to be directed for that student. And nobody's being dragged down. It's a myth. And nobody is left behind that might be learning at a different pace. And our answer to it was creating a co-teaching model to differentiate the instruction for that particular learner. It it sounds like such common sense, right? It sounds so <laughs> simple. Right, we're in the same structure, the same room, everybody's together, but we have teaching that is tailored to the groups. So I guess my question to you, Audra, is, and, and you kind of mentioned this before, why wasn't it being done in New York City before you all did it? Well, it's a great question. And I think there's a couple of reasons. So first is it does require some additional resources. You have to make prior, every organization has to make decisions about priorities and commitment of resources. So one way that resources are important when you're talking about inclusion is the co-teaching model that Michelle mentioned. So that's a general educator and a special educator working together in a classroom. So that's 
that's an additional full head teacher in a classroom. Um, there is training that is involved. There are other resource issues and you have to make them a priority. But I think the bigger issue that you come up against when you're talking about inclusion in other educational systems is it's a matter of prioritizing and believing in the value of having a, a excuse me, a diverse educational environment. So at Ideal, everybody there is on board with the mission of inclusion. It is inclusive from the top down to the bottom up. Nobody walks in that door and has to leave their identity behind them at the door. It's a philosophy. It's a it's in our DNA, right? So if you are trying to convince the educators at the school or the leadership of the school or the teachers there, that's a you're in a different situation. What we have at Ideal and what we would love to see in other schools, public, private, anything across the country, is a belief in our children, the belief that all children can learn, all children are valuable to a community, that everybody brings something to the table, and that all students are teachable. And everybody at the Ideal School believes that. And we all support one another. We all celebrate each other's differences. It's okay if one student struggles in one area, there'll be another area that they that they are spectacular in. Michelle, so to help us understand, what does a classroom in the ideal school look like and, and feel like and sound like? Yeah, Audra loves this one. Um, Audra, I'd love to toss this to you. Good, Audra, it's all yours. Quite honestly, it looks like every other classroom in America. Our classrooms don't look different. And in fact, oftentimes you're not even going to be able to know which students are receiving extra support in the school. Not everybody has a visible disability. Um, what you might see that is different in an ideal school classroom is there are smaller class sizes. You're going to see more instructors in the room, but you're not going to really know which teachers are focusing on which students because everybody's working with everybody. You might see flexible grouping. You might see students all together in a classroom learning about a subject at one point and then breaking off into smaller groups, receiving their differentiated instruction, doing different projects related to the same topic in small groups. You might see at the Ideal School something that I am really proud of, that I think we're all really proud of that we do, is we do not pull students out of the classroom to get their therapies. So you might see all students leaving the classroom to go to different electives. One student might be going to an art elective. One student might be going to a music elective. One student might be getting occupational therapy. There's no stigma. There's no difference um, in how they're treated and, and perceived by the community. Here's what you feel when you walk in that school and you watch these human beings, teachers, admin, and the students with each other, you feel respect. You feel complete immersion of this isn't my friend Dylan with Down syndrome and he can't read. This is my friend Dylan. That's what you feel. You see and viscerally feel how if we started teaching human beings at young ages that differences are okay, they're not scary, we all have, have to adapt, we all have to coexist, it's an absolutely remarkable social study to watch and feel. How did your own children 
How did your own children do? How did they benefit from this type of environment? <laughs> well, I can tell you that my son, Max, who is now 23 years old, so he started the school. He was in first grade when we opened it. He was in the first graduating class in 2018. He is proud of the fact that he has Down syndrome. He doesn't think of it as a negative. It is just a part of his identity. It is just part of who he is. And that is something we work very, very hard to cultivate at the school with an intentional identity curriculum, with the social justice work that we do from kindergarten on every student. And it's not just students with disabilities. It's all of our students. We have an incredibly diverse population. Um, our, our celebrating one another's unique aspects of their identity from the beginning. There's also the fact that I think he did reach his potential in all of the subject areas that he worked on at school because he felt safe, he felt accepted, and he was taught to access the curriculum at the level where he was at each stage. Michelle, how about you? Yeah, you know, uh, our model tackles bullying without have to say tackles bullying. My son didn't get bullied. Kids with Down syndrome can be targets. Kids with differences can be targets. Kids without disabilities can be targets. This model, our school is a movement. Our school was a pioneering movement way back when. And the issues that we're seeing now with bullying and the differences and, and just the harassment is inclusion solves the problem this coexistent concept from a young age, and it's in the DNA of everybody and everything. We have word of the month ideal. It's not word of the month for special needs children. It's word of the month. We are all about civil rights, civil justice, social justice. This is an answer to one of the most systemic problems we are seeing in youth. Yeah, once again, the ideal school of Manhattan just as I said before, a, 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 a marvelous idea that has been put into play and has accomplished everything that we could hope for, and we just need more of it. So uh, our thanks to both of you, Audra and, and Michelle, for joining us, and, and we'll look forward to maybe talking again down the road and, and seeing how all of this is evolving. You all be well. Take care now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.